MSW Media. News was wearing daily beans, daily beans, daily beans, daily beans. Hello. And welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, September 30th, 2020. Today, we have details about the Jensen investigation into Flynn on behalf of Bill Barr and potential falsified federal documents, along with the Flynn hearing in Sullivan's courtroom today and how it did not go well for Sidney Powell. A judge agrees to release the grand jury transcripts in the Breonna Taylor case after a juror files a motion. Newly obtained documents show how the White House pushed to open schools early despite COVID concerns. A resurgence of COVID in Brazil dashes immunity hopes. A follow-up on the unnecessary hysterectomies at a private for-profit ICE detention camp. And Ratcliffe declassifies Russian disinformation and gives it to Lindsey Graham. I'm your host, A.G. Hello, everyone. It is the last day of September, one full month and a couple of days to go before the election. And it's going to speed by and it's going to be a lot of news. We have a big show for you today, including news uh, on the first Flynn hearing since the en banc court denied Flynn's motion to dismiss and remanded it back to Judge Sullivan. I'll bring you that information. I live tweeted it and watched all five hours of it. Uh, I was in the virtual courtroom as it happened, um, so I have the lowdown. I will also be talking to former assistant director for the FBI for counterintelligence, Frank Figaluzzi, about the national security implications brought by the revelations about Trump's tax returns in the New York Times story. And Dana Goldberg, it's AGDG time, will be joining me for the good news segment. So I'm looking forward to that. As always, we have so many headlines. We will be bumping the Flip It Blue segment to tomorrow. Uh, and we'll have one on Friday as well. We'll be speaking with Devin Q tomorrow and Harley Rauda, respectively, uh, on Friday. And we have a lot of headlines to get to. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. Okay, so Rachel Cohen, that is the communications director for ranking member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner. She tweeted today about a document that DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, Ratcliffe, declassified and gave to Lindsey Graham. Uh, The document contains Russian intelligence alleging that Hillary Clinton approved a campaign plan to stir up a scandal against Trump by trying to tie him to Putin and the Russian hacking of the DNC. Let me repeat that treasonous shit for those in the back. Ratcliffe has declassified Russian intel so he could share it with Lindsey Graham. This is Russian intelligence that alleges a bullshit accusation that Clinton cooked up the Russian hack of our elections to harm Trump. He's actually trying to convince Americans it was Hillary that conspired with Putin to harm Trump. And he's trying to do this using Russian intelligence. Ratcliffe stipulated that the intelligence community does not know the accuracy of the Russian allegation. (laughs) But but they have a shit fit when uh, the NSA says high confidence and the CIA says moderate confidence. They throw out the whole fucking intelligence assessment or any intelligence, you know, when they don't all have super high confidence, which they never do because they have different kinds of intelligence gathering. Uh, Rachel Cohen, that's the comms director for Mark Warner, says in her tweet, this is Russian disinformation laundered by the director of national intelligence and the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. This is extraordinary. Indeed it is, Rachel. We'll keep you posted on that. 
And from the New York Times, top White House officials pressured the Centers for Disease Control this summer to downplay the risks of sending children back to school, a strikingly political intervention in one of the most sensitive public health debates of the pandemic, according to documents and interviews and emails with current and former government officials. As part of their behind-the-scenes effort, the White House also tried to circumvent the CDC in search of an alternate data set showing the pandemic was weakening and that it posed little danger to children. They were looking for alternative data to fit their narrative. The documents and interviews show the White House spent weeks trying to press the public health professionals to fall in line with the president uh, and his election year agenda of pushing to reopen schools and the economy as quickly as possible. The president and his team have remained defiant in their demand for schools to get back to normal, even as coronavirus cases have once again ticked up, in some cases linked to school and college reopenings. The effort included Burks, Dr. Scarf, that's the White House's coronavirus response coordinator, and officials working for Mike Pence, who led the task force. It left officials at the CDC, long considered the gold standard public health agency, alarmed at the degree of pressure from the White House. One member of Mr. Pence's staff says she was repeatedly asked by Mark Short, the vice president's chief of staff, to get the CDC to produce more reports and charts showing the decline in coronavirus cases among children and young people. The staff member, Olivia Troy, one of Pence's top aides on the task force, said she regretted being complicit in the effort, but she's tried as much as possible to shield the CDC from the White House pressure, which she saw as driven by the president's determination to have schools open by the time voters cast ballots. According to Ms. Troy, Mr. Short dispatched other members of the vice presidential staff to circumvent the CDC in search of data he thought might better support the White House's position. Several former officials said that before one task force meeting in late June, White House officials, including Ms. Troy, spoke to top CDC officers asking for data that could show the low risk of infection and death for school-aged children and asked for, quote, a snazzy, easy-to-read document. Snazzy. I'm doing jazz hands. You can't see it. In another instance, Dr. Scarf took a direct role in an effort to push the CDC to incorporate work from a little-known agency inside the Department of Health and Human Services called the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And this document, worked on by the mental health agency, struck a different tone from the cautious approach being proposed by the CDC, warning that school closures could have long-term impacts on the mental health of children. It said that, quote, very few reports of children being the primary source of COVID-19 transmission among family members have emerged. And they asserted that children who were asymptomatic are unlikely to spread the virus. That's bullshit, and we know it. In a July 19th email, Dr. Burks asked Robert Redfield of the CDC to incorporate the document as background in the introduction section of the CDC guidance. CDC scientists pointed out numerous errors in the document, like I just did, and raised concerns that it appeared to minimize the risk of coronavirus to school-aged children. That's according to an edited version of the document obtained by the New York Times. The CDC was successful in beating back some of the proposed changes, and the line about asymptomatic children was not included in its final guidelines. But the gist of the mental health agency position, stressing the risk of, to mental health by children not attending school, became the introductory text of the final CDC policy. The CDC did not immediately provide comment. That's fucking terrifying. And from Reuters, the largest city in Brazil's Amazon has closed its bars and river beaches to contain a fresh surge of coronavirus cases. This is a trend that could dash theories that Manaus was once uh, one of the world's first places to reach collective or herd immunity. 
when a large portion of community uh, becomes immune to a disease, its, its spread becomes unlikely. That's herd immunity. We know what that is. The University of Sao Paulo researchers suggested that a, a drastic fall in COVID-19 deaths in Manaus pointed to a collective immunity. But they also believe that antibodies to the, disease, to the disease after infection may not last more than a couple of few months. Local authorities on Friday enforced a 30-day ban on parties and gatherings and restricted restaurant and shopping hours. This is a setback for the 1.8 million who live in the city. Uh, you know, after the worst of the pandemic seemed to be behind them, they felt like they were ready to reopen. In April and May, so many Manaus residents were dying from COVID that its hospitals collapsed and cemeteries could not dig graves fast enough. The city never imposed a full lockdown. Non-essential businesses were closed, but many simply ignored social distancing guidelines. And in June, deaths unexpectedly plummeted. Public health experts wondered whether so many residents had caught the virus that it had run out of new people to infect or they had achieved herd immunity. But now the numbers are on the rise again. The study's lead researcher... Uh, Esther Sabino declined to be interviewed for the article because the Manaus herd immunity study awaits peer review for publication, so it has not been peer reviewed. But authorities warned Manaus residents they were ignoring the virus and risked a second wave of contagion by not wearing masks, packing into bars and attending parties. So they shut down Manaus's river beachfront where the raves were being held. Manaus Mayor Arthur, um, let's see, Virgilio, blamed right-wing President Bolsonaro, who has minimized the gravity of COVID. And he blames him for encouraging a return to normal life and work instead of waiting for a vaccine. The Sao Paulo University study said coronavirus antibodies appeared to wane after just a few months, which could explain the resurgence in Manaus. Quote, something became evident in our study, and that is also being shown by other groups, is that antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 decay quickly a few months after infection. Um, And so... We've we've talked about other studies that have come out of China uh, and Taiwan that show the same thing, and South Korea, too. Also, today, a grand juror in the Breonna Taylor case has suggested Kentucky Attorney General um, that he may have represented to the public the case presented to the panel. This is according to this juror's lawyer. Quote, my client wants to make sure the truth gets out. The grand juror has requested in court that any and all recordings, transcripts, and reports of the grand jury related to the case be released to the public, a move that former Kentucky prosecutor called totally surprising and tremendously uncommon. Glogauer said Tuesday his client's position is, quote, what was presented to jurors is not being publicly disclosed, unquote. Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, a Trump supporter and donor, on Monday night said he only recommended charges of wanton endangerment to the grand jury, which did not charge any of the officers with killing Taylor. Cameron, in a statement, said prosecutors presented all evidence, even though the facts showed use by force by two officers not charged was justified because they were fired upon. For that reason, the only charge recommended was wanton endangerment. In addition to the release of the recordings and transcripts, the juror, according to the court documents obtained by CNN, also asked the court to, quote, make a binding declaration that the grand juror has the right to disclose information. It asked for details about the process and details of the proceedings, particularly the motion stated to avoid fears that Cameron would attempt to use the court's powers of contempt in the case of public disclosure. So this juror was afraid of retaliation. The juror's lawyer said Cameron's initial public statement had, quote, laid a lot of responsibility at the grand juror's feet, but his most recent declarations attempted to walk that back. 
He said the juror contacted his office Friday afternoon and called his motion highly unusual in his 15 years of practice. The juror's lawyer said Cameron's public statements leave unanswered questions about what evidence was presented to the grand jury and what the charging recommendations were made to the grand jury. The office of Louisville Mayor Greg Fisher Tuesday reiterated its intention to release as much as possible without jeopardizing the ongoing criminal investigation. The attorney general initially refused to release the grand jury transcripts related to the Taylor case despite growing public calls to do so by the Louisville mayor, the Kentucky governor, and Taylor's family's attorneys. But Cameron on Monday uh, announced he would comply with the judge's ruling. The judge's ruling, oh, thank you so much. The judge's ruling ordering a recording of the grand jury presentation to be added to the court's case file. And finally, the New York Times has done some major investigative reporting into the horrific stories out last week about unnecessary GYN procedures at a private for-profit ICE detention camp in Georgia. The Irwin County Detention Center in Osceola, Georgia, drew national attention this month after nurse Dawn Wooten filed a whistleblower complaint complaining that uh, claiming detainees had told her they had their uteruses removed without full understanding or consent. Since then, both ICE and the hospitals in Irwin County have released data that show two full hysterectomies have been performed on women detained at Irwin in the past three years. But firsthand accounts are now emerging from detainees, including Mrs. Dow, who underwent other invasive gynecological procedures that they did not fully understand and in some cases may not have been medically necessary. At least one lawyer brought the complaints about GYN care to their attention or to the attention of the center's top officials in 2018. Back in 2018, according to emails obtained by the Times. But the outside referrals continued. The Times interviewed 16 women who were concerned about the GYN care they received while at the center and conducted a detailed review of the medical files of seven of the the women who were able to obtain their own records. All 16 were treated by Dr. Mahendra Amin, who practices gynecology in the nearby town of Douglas and has been described by ICE officials as the detention center's primary gynecologist. The cases were reviewed by five gynecologists, four of them board certified, all with medical school affiliations, who found that Dr. Amin constantly overstated the size or risks associated with cysts or masses attached to his patient's reproductive organs. Smaller benign cysts do not typically need surgery, while large or otherwise troubling ones sometimes do. That's according to these experts. The doctor stressed that in some cases, the medical files might not have been completed and that additional information could potentially shift their analyses. But they noted Dr. Amin seemed to consistently recommend surgical intervention, even when it didn't seem medically necessary at the time, and non-surgical treatment options were available. In almost every woman's chart, Dr. Amin listed symptoms such as heavy bleeding with clots and chronic pelvic pain, which could justify surgery, but some of the women said they had never experienced or reported those symptoms to him at all. Both the reviewing doctors and all of the women interviewed by the Times raised concerns about whether Dr. Amin had adequately explained the procedures he performed or provided to his patients with less invasive alternatives. Spanish-speaking women said a nurse who spoke Spanish was only sporadically present there during the exams. And the diagnosis, or excuse me, the diagnoses and procedures are poorly supported and not well documented, according to Dr. Sarah Immershine. That's a clinical professor at George Washington University and the Washington, D.C. chair of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Poorly supported, not well documented, these diagnoses. And even if the patients had reported the symptoms recorded by Dr. Amin, there would have been many avenues to pursue before rushing to surgery. Advil, for one. He is overly aggressive in his treatment and does not explore appropriate medical management before turning to procedures or surgical intervention. That's Dr. Deborah Ottenheimer, a forensic evaluator and instructor at the Will Cornell Medical School Human Rights Clinic.
Independent doctors that provide treatment for ICE detainees are paid per procedure by the Department of Homeland Security funds. Your tax dollars. Procedures like the ones Dr. Amin performed are normally billed at thousands of dollars each. The picture becomes clearer because Dr. Amin's billings have previously come under attention of the federal authorities. In 2013, Department of Justice named him in a civil case alleging that he and several other doctors had overbilled Medicare and Medicaid by, among other things, performing unnecessary procedures on terminal patients and leaving the emergency room staffed by nurses while billing for diagnoses and treatments as if they'd been performed by doctors. The case was settled. The defendants were collectively required to pay over half a million dollars. So it seems like here's a doctor who's on loan, a private doctor, to a private health facility paid by our government dollars, who comes in, sees some cysts, sees some bleeding, and instead of recommending Advil, he does a surgery, charges thousands, walks out. This is reprehensible, needs further investigation. I appreciate the New York Times looking into it as much as they did. We have to vote. Vote number's too big to manipulate. We'll be right back with a recap of the Flynn hearing right after this message. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Today's episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by PayPal. These are difficult times. There's so many new challenges we're facing. And things may have changed around us, but our inner drive to be there for the people we care about and the organizations we support runs deeper than ever. It is crucial to stay involved and support our loved ones, friends, families, and orgs that support us. When we come together as a community, we empower ourselves to make meaningful change as we're finding new ways to connect and continue to supporting support one another. And we've, you know, we've started social distancing when we spend times with friends exploring new cuisine, or we're doing more to support and advocate for underrepresented communities than we ever have. So what we need more of is, a, is now than ever is an easy way to support each other from afar. And for me, that solution is PayPal. With the PayPal app, sending and receiving money is fast and easy. You can stay connected with people you love and quickly and securely send money to friends and family just about anywhere in the world. You can start a money pool to split the bill on something, go in on a gift, fundraise for a good cause. We have a group in our neighborhood who goes around, who goes to Costco and delivers a bunch of stuff to people who can't leave their homes and everyone uses PayPal. With PayPal, you can support the places and causes you care about the most. I recently donated to Act Blue. I was able to send financial support to friends of mine in a real who are like having a hard time. I was able to do that through PayPal as well. And that really helps. And with PayPal, I can instantly donate to local nonprofits or support a cause from across the country. And you can even make touch-free QR code payments at your favorite local restaurants or farmers markets. PayPal is making it easy to pay safely, quickly, and easily. So download the PayPal app today. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, everybody. So a few days ago, Marcy Wheeler, the intrepid Marcy Wheeler, um, she analyzed the documents submitted by Sidney Powell. That's Flynn's crackpot conspiracy theory lawyer. Uh, Sidney Powell submitted these documents as new evidence in the Flynn case. And uh, Marcy Wheeler went over them and found all kinds of problems. The most obvious being dates that were added to Peter Strzok's handwritten notes about the interview with Flynn. And these dates do not appear on his original notes. And one is a date range instead of a specific date, which makes no sense, but that was done so that Sidney Powell could make a false claim about Joe Biden and when he knew things. 
The same thing happened to Andy McCabe's notes, a date added after the fact by someone other than the person who wrote the notes, and which appears to match the handwriting of the dates added to Strzok's notes. We also learned that pages of text messages were given to Powell by Jeffrey Jensen. Jeff Jensen is the U.S. attorney from the Eastern District of Missouri that Bill Barr recruited to personally look into the Flynn case. Remember that? He put Durham on the origins of the Russia investigation. He put Jensen on the Flynn case. And it appears that these FBI notes were altered after the fact by someone in the Department of Justice to discredit the FBI interviewers in the Flynn case and to change dates to try to claim Biden knew about the interview. And it was sloppily done. Strzok's lawyer sent a letter to Sullivan, Judge Sullivan, about it. Judge Sullivan is the presiding judge once again in the Flynn case. And this morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time was the first hearing in the Flynn case since the en banc circuit court remanded the case back to Judge Sullivan after telling Sidney Powell and the Department of Justice to shove it up their mandamus. I listened to and live-tweeted all five hours of the hearing today. There were some significant standout moments. First, regarding the struck documents, Sullivan said he was floored, quote, floored by the inference that the FBI notes had been tampered with, gave everyone a week to file briefings on it, and then moved on. The rest of the lodgements filed by Sidney Powell, all this extra evidence, including the text messages and the interview with FBI agent Barnett, who appears to have told the Department of Justice just this past week that he didn't think Crossfire Hurricane had, had any predication to be opened. All that additional shit was addressed by Judge Gleason who Sullivan has appointed to defend the people of the United States since the Department of Justice gave up that job, changed its mind, and sided with Mike Flynn. So Gleason is an amicus curiae, a friend of the court, a friend of the people. Gleason said, first of all, there's a standing order that you're not supposed to submit any more shit until the Brady review is complete, which is a review of additional exculpatory evidence. And that's not complete. But even if Powell were allowed to submit shit, this whole case has become a judicial whack-a-mole where the lawyers for Flynn keep making shit up and submitting it to the court as evidence that the case should be dismissed. There has to be a date by which you have to stop concocting shit and throwing it at the bench to see if it sticks. I'm paraphrasing, by the way. He said, quote, This has become a game of whack-a-mole as the Department of Justice continues to unearth utterly inconsequential administrative tidbits and then launders them through the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Missouri. It is sad. Unquote. The issue of the court being a rubber stamp for the executive branch came up a lot because Flynn's lawyers and the Department of Justice, who are the same team now, are arguing that the judge has to dismiss the case simply because the attorney general says so. Gleason argues that's stupid, because what if the attorney general is an asshole? Actually, he said, quote, if you accept the DOJ argument that they've done this in the interest of justice, and therefore you must grant the motion, you have become the rubber stamp the Supreme Court worked to deliberately avoid when it added back the, quote, leave of court requirement to Rule 48A. Did that almost 70 years ago. Leave of court means you have to get permission from the court to dismiss a case. Supreme Court added that language back in for just this particular situation when the attorney general is a piece of shit, when the Department of Justice is corrupt, so that judges no longer had to hold their noses and just do whatever the executive branch told, told them to. And the Supreme Court did this because of separation of powers. That takes a power, it takes a check away from the judiciary and the executive branch. Something else we learned from this hearing is that there was a FARA violation 
or multiple FARA violations committed by um, by Flynn and multiple other crimes. Specifically, 18 U.S. Code 1001 lying because he told a ton of lies to the FBI. We learned this today from both sides. This came up because the Department of Justice and Flynn's lawyers are asking to dismiss the case with prejudice, which means you can't prosecute him later. The judge asked, well, what if some future prosecutor wanted to go after the FARA violations? And the Department of Justice responded, oh, that's fine. This dismissal uh, with prejudice only covers this one lie and not all of his other lies and crimes. They actually said that. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what they said. But it appears here that the Department of Justice and the judge all admit Flynn committed a shitload of other crimes that he wasn't prosecuted for because he agreed to cooperate and then he stopped cooperating. The Department of Justice and Powell brought up the old arguments after they were told uh, explicitly not to do so, all the, all the arguments they've been making, because Sullivan was like, look, we know what your arguments are. We're crystal clear on your arguments. We don't need to hear your arguments. Let's talk about this new shit. And let's hear from Judge Gleason. But the DOJ and Powell brought up old arguments anyway, including the lie that Strzok texted and talked about an insurance policy to keep Donald Trump from being president. And that is not what he said in context. He testified about this under oath. He said he was making an analogy of how to balance the investigation against source safety. He tweeted today, if the government was unable to review my under oath testimony, uh, you know, which is available, they could have interviewed me or anyone else for that matter, but they didn't. And Sidney Powell was garbage during this entire hearing. She got into a heated exchange with Judge Sullivan when he asked her if she'd ever met with the president himself to discuss the case went like this. Sullivan, have you ever had a discussion with the president about this case? Powell, I can't discuss that. Sullivan, why? Powell, uh, that would be protected by executive privilege. Sullivan, you don't work for the government. Powell, I don't think I have to work for the government to have executive privilege. And Sullivan was about to tell her how that's fucking wrong. And she's, well, well, she's, well, I provided the White House with an update on the case. Okay, how did you provide the update to the White House? Powell, I provided it to counsel for the White House. Sullivan, well, who did you speak with? White House counsel? The president's counsel? Personal counsel? How did you provide this update? Powell, I spoke with Jenna Ellis and the president himself to provide the update. Hmm. Sullivan, did you make any requests of the president? Powell, no. Wait, I told him to not issue a pardon. Sullivan, have you had any other discussions with the president about the case? Powell, not that I recall. Sullivan, you telling me you wouldn't remember speaking with the president directly? Powell, well, the New York Times said I talked to him like five times. Maybe they know better than me. Sullivan, so yes or no? Powell, well, time has a way of getting away, getting by me, but, I, you know, I probably spoke to him other times. Sullivan, okay. Did you ask the president to tell the attorney general to appoint new prosecutors in this case? Powell, oh, heavens no. Sullivan, okay, what did you speak with him about? Powell, I gave him an update. At one point, Powell addressed the struck document alterations and said, quote, I don't understand. There are Brady violations all over this case, and you're concerned about a couple of dates and the struck notes, but you're not concerned about all the bias in the FBI? Unquote. Yeah, so she's actually, oh, you're, you're a little bit of, you know, you come in here, 
uh, with a, you know, a bump or a scrape or a bruise or, a, you know, a broken neck or whatever. And you want me to be concerned. You're like she, she literally downplayed the fact that the Department of Justice could have handed her or she could have somebody altered FBI documents. Oh, you're concerned about a couple of dates on some documents. One of the Republicans' biggest things here is Kleinsmith. One of the biggest talking points from the right is pounding on this FBI lawyer, Kleinsmith, who added something, allegedly, to an email saying that Carter Page was not an informant for the CIA in the FISA warrant. Even though the inspector general has said it wouldn't have made a fucking difference in the FISA warrant, they're all over it. Oh, he altered the document. Oh, my God. And he's pleading guilty. I don't know why he's pleading guilty. He probably doesn't have enough money to not plead guilty, but he's pleading guilty. Uh, but, you know, oh, to add some dates, make some changes to some FBI document. Meh. What about all the bias in the FBI? What about the deep state? The deep state who tried to wreck Trump's campaign. And they could have easily done it had they just said he was under investigation for his ties to Russia, but they didn't. That deep state? Boy, they're about as good at being deep state operatives as Melania is to being a gold digger. Huh. Anyway, we also learned for the first time that Sidney Powell wrote a letter to Bill Barr himself before she presented as counsel for Flynn, when Covington Burling were still his lawyers, and asked Barr to put new prosecutors on the case for the Department of Justice, ones that were more sympathetic to Flynn, and added she wanted to meet with him and he could call her any time. Here's my number. You call me. We'll discuss. We'll have lunch. Sullivan asked if uh, there was any follow-up on that. And she said no. And he asked, do you think that that was ethically appropriate? To write that letter? Of course it was. Covington Burling already said they were going to quit. I hadn't presented his counsel yet, but I was going to be. And so I wrote him a letter. <laughs> Sullivan hinted that the Bar Association might disagree. <laughs> so that was interesting it was a pretty contentious hearing Sullivan thanked everyone at the end said he will take all the arguments under advisement gave everyone a week to file their shit at which point Sidney Powell actually asked Judge Sullivan for an urgent copy of the court transcript he replied I'm a judge that's an administrative request you can submit to the court she then asked him to validate her parking no I'm kidding but what the fuck She's such garbage. Anyway, for more details on the hearing, you can check out my tweets. I live tweeted the entire five hours. And those tweets are at Mueller, she wrote. And we'll be right back with the former assistant director of the FBI for counterintelligence, Frank Vagluzzi. We're going to discuss what he considers to be the most important implication of the Trump tax story from the New York Times, the threat to national security. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG. 2020 has been truly craptacular so far. We could use a break from the stress and the constant bad news. So if you're looking for a fun way to give yourself a break while keeping your brain engaged and staying on your game, and you get to enjoy breathtaking visuals and a gripping story, try out Best Fiends. It's a super fun game, and it's an app, and I'm kind of obsessed with it. I love Best Fiends because it's a refreshing pause from the daily insanity of politics. I can escape 
and I don't have to worry about the pandemic and the orange menace, but it keeps my mind focused and active, and I love that. Best Fiends for me is the great stress reliever. It's part of my self-care routine. I can focus on character collection, leveling them up, fun, challenging puzzles to engage my brain, and it's fun. I started playing Best Fiends um, as a quick distraction, but I was so captivated by it. The, the design is really incredible. The colors are amazing. It's very calming. And I got deeper into the story and the characters, most of which are bugs. Um, and the bad guys are slugs, which is kind of like the White House. And you collect tons of characters, and you use them strategically at each level. Um, I find myself playing more and more in weird places at random times because you don't have to have the internet. Uh, you don't have to have Wi-Fi access uh, or use cell data. Uh, Best Fiends treats the game like a service, not just a game. It's a service for their players, and it updates it monthly with new levels and events. It never gets old. It's always fresh. I am now on level 1260 or so, um, so I, I kind of play it a lot, but it's just so relaxing. But like I said, it keeps you sharp. Um, Best Fiends is a unique and exciting puzzle experience unlike any other game out there, so you can engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. So download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Hey everybody, welcome back. Joining me today to discuss the most important implication of the information we've gleaned from the New York Times reporting on Trump's tax returns is former assistant director of the FBI for counterintelligence, Frank Figluzzi. Frank, welcome to The Daily Beans. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I am so glad to speak with you today because you penned a piece today uh, discussing the issue that a lot of news outlets and uh, Trump supporters and non-Trump supporters alike seem to be missing um, about the Trump tax returns, and that's the national security implication. And, and you know, I have to say I'm glad this story is getting the attention it's getting, but I, I feel like it's getting attention for the wrong reasons. Can you tell us about the implications here? Yeah. Um, look, it's a topic I'm passionate about because I lived it for 25 years in the FBI. And that is that the real story here in the tax returns, as reported, not a wealthy businessman avoiding taxes, but rather, if you dig deep, you'll see a staggering amount of debt, something personally signed for and is personally on the hook for. And what that what that portrays is an incredible target for foreign intelligence services and other nefarious actors who simply would be more than happy to help him out of his financial hole, humiliation, and criminal exposure in return for a price. And if you ask any corporate security director about the threat posed by former employees, resigned employees, retired employees, fired employees, they'll tell you that there's a growing threat from these ex-people who walk out with their brains filled with company secrets. Well, just take a moment to think about the secrets that a president walks out of office with. Everything from, you know, his knowledge that the agency, the CIA, might have recruited the administrative assistant to a prime minister, or that the FBI might have planted a bug inside a foreign embassy in the U.S., or the response time that the military would need to respond to incoming missile attack, or the strategy for defending Taiwan from a Chinese invasion. We can go on and on and on, but the guy's got that knowledge in his head. And if he is desperate enough to avoid what looks like almost probable personal bankruptcy based on his debt, 
then what has he, number one, already done? And number two, what might he do when he leaves office and, and is no longer protected by his office? Yeah, and, and you're talking about the national security secrets. He hasn't spilled uh, on accident <laughs> or to Russians in the Oval Office or at Mar-a-Lago at dinner. You're talking about the stuff that hasn't been, uh, he's let slip. Um, but, and, you know, we don't know who he owes this money to. I mean, we know some um, and some banks that he owes this money to, but we don't know who's underwritten these loans, who's co-signed on these loans. But it sounds like what you're saying is it almost doesn't matter. He could owe the money to his buddy in New York. That he owes that much money makes him a target. Precisely. And and so you, you've raised a, a good point, tongue in cheek, perhaps. But yeah, we he's already kind of told us who he is. He, you know, he either accidentally or on purpose spilled secrets in the Oval Office to a Russian delegation. And who knows what else he's already done. And that's precisely my point is we've never, as we, we continue to learn every day, we've never truly resolved the counter, the, the key counterintelligence question that kicked off um, at the FBI with the Russian counterintelligence investigation and then got, uh, we thought, got handed to the special counsel, um, but never actually got resolved. And my whole point is this this problem isn't going away anytime soon, and it won't go away even if he doesn't get reelected. It, it doesn't go away. He still poses a threat. And so my my point that I end my uh, my piece that's been posted on NBC Think um, is we got it. This this investigation has to happen. It's not. I'm not about revenge or let's keep going after this guy. I'm about we need to resolve the seminal counterintelligence question of our time. Was our president compromised? Does his continuing financial problem um, continue to pose a national security threat to us later or even now? Yeah, and you're totally right. In, in uh, Weinstein's, or excuse me, Weissman's new book, um, uh, you know, he uh, Andrew Weissman, prosecutor on the Mueller team, you know, he talks about how uh, they they were trying to push looking into the finances of the president. Uh, they got some pushback from, I believe, Zebley. Mueller took the question, but they never, you know, he said they never actually looked into these finances. Now, whether you agree that Mueller did his job or not, or whether you understand that there was this sort of Damocles hanging over their heads during the entire investigation, that if they took one look into these finances or subpoenaed Deutsche Bank, for these finances, that they would all be fired. And you might think, good, be fired then. But whether whether you think that or not, the, the fact of the matter remains, this investigation into Trump's financial ties, specifically and particularly to Russia or other foreign adversaries, was not looked into. Yeah, it's a, hu it's a huge gap. And I, I would assert that it's actually far more important an issue than resolving any criminal exposure that Trump may have had in collusion or, you know, the lack of criminal uh, the lack of criminal uh, conspiracy or the obstruction of justice issues that came up in the Mueller probe. I, I'm saying, look, I, this, I'm just taking a look at a much higher level. I'm, I'm saying this guy has the vulnerabilities that all point to what any foreign intelligence service would salivate over. I can tell you from my counterintelligence days, our agents would have dreamt of a recruitment target with this kind of financial debt and exposure, because we would have surrounded that target 
with offers and promises to take care of whatever issues he had if he would just play along with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my personal belief is had uh, the Mueller team gone into that financial realm, they could have all been fired and we would not have all the evidence for obstruction of justice that we have. Or a lot of the information that the Mueller team and the the SSCI used in their assessment of the ties between the Russia campaign and Trump. But also, had they all been fired, this investigation into Trump's finances would have also stopped. Uh, it, so, you know, I'm I'm on the fence about this and I'm still sort of mulling it over in my head, no pun intended. But it is an investigation that did not happen and it needs to happen. And that's the bottom line. Bingo. And I, I think where I would come down on that is I would have liked to have seen Mueller. Mueller was famous, by the way, when I when I worked for him at the bureau for going in writing a, across the street, as we used to say, to DOJ uh, on things that he wanted to ask for or express an opinion on. And he wanted a documented record of. So I would have liked to have seen him go to Rosenstein or or whoever and say, Uh, Hey, uh, not for nothing, but I'd like to take a look at finances. I'd like to subpoena Deutsche Bank um, and have have DOJ say no and get that on the record. I don't I don't think he would have been fired immediately. I think that that he would have had a a declination in hand and he would have had that as a matter of record. And we could say, well, he tried and someone stymied it. I, I think I'd rather have seen that. And my whole point is this. Um, And I get this question a lot. And I address it in my my upcoming book, um, The FBI Way. And that is I get the members of the public. And today they're doing it on social media with me on Twitter. Why was this allowed? Why is this kind of debt uh, allowed? How can we elect a man who's in a hole like this? And my question is the same every time. We, We live in a democracy. We don't do background checks on people who are elected to office. We just hand them their clearance. It's de facto that the president of the United States gets all the clearances he needs to do his job. And, you know, we don't do background checks for a myriad of reasons. And and that means that a person applying to work in the cafeteria at FBI headquarters who ex, who, who demonstrated one-tenth of a, a fraction of this kind of debt and financial problem would never be allowed in the building. And and yet this person is the president of the United States. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, and we have to think about how we correct that um, going forward. And uh, I, I mean, whether it's a matter of having a, a, a presidential commission that just is always looking into that or we start doing background checks on people we elect or that are running or want to be considered to be elected to to office, especially the highest one in the land. Maybe that's that's how we handle it. But yeah, I, I also would have liked to have seen uh, Mueller go to paper a little more. And, and maybe there's maybe there's a reason. Maybe that happened and we don't know. And there it was not put on paper and we don't know. And, and I mean, I'm looking forward to reading uh, Weissman's book, but... I don't know that we'll ever know that. Uh, no, and and I understand that Mueller Mueller's issued a statement, a rare statement with regard to Weissman's book, saying, "Hey, no big shock that a bunch of smart people disagreed on things, um, mm-hmm. but let's not draw conclusions based on partial information." So I found that to be incredibly 
um, interesting that a guy who barely speaks to the public has felt it felt it necessary to issue a statement about Weissman. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, I will definitely be going over his book in detail. And I've got my own theories about it. But, you know, like you said, and like I've said, the fact still remains, we don't have the full picture of Trump's financial ties to foreign adversaries. And we need it. Yeah. And it, and it's, um, gosh, there's a whole myriad of possibilities that all of which are hypothetical, but I've seen in, in real life play out with people who have have power um, and then try to sell their access. And it happens at all levels. And I, I'm all I'm here to say is it's not just Russia. It's it's foreign powers. It's organized crime groups. Um, who knows what manner of person or organization will try to get what they need out of a president who has the access to what they need and needs help digging out of a hole. So this this notion that um, Trump's public persona that he spent years cultivating, that he is the successful business mogul, um, is collapsing around him. And even more to the point, within four years or less, he is going to have to figure out how to pay this massive debt. So, for example, the New York Times reporting indicates that he hasn't paid a penny yet of principal on the mortgage on Trump Trump Tower, New York. I mean, that's just one of his properties. And that's all coming due. He's going to have to sell off tremendous amounts of assets to try and and make this right. And he will be left with a fraction of the so-called empire that he has, and he'll be desperate for income. And then let's not forget the exposure of his family members. I mean, the revelations in these tax returns include his daughter, Ivanka, who, you know, he, he claimed that her consulting fees as a business expense for the Trump organization, even simultaneously while she was an employee of that organization. That's a that I mean, that's a violation, as is, by the way, $70,000 in business expenses for hairstyling while he was on The Apprentice. Anybody who's been on TV knows. I've tried it. I've tried it. I can't write that off. Yeah, my my tax accountant laughed hysterically when I asked him. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm new at this. I, I started doing TV three years ago, and I said, "Hey, um, I'm going to the barber a little more often than I usually do. Can I write that off?" He laughed hysterically. Yeah, or I'm you know my gym membership. I got to stay fit, or my Botox, or yeah. my expensive makeup that I have to buy now for the. Yeah, no, you can't write that shit off. And then, of course, you know what you're mentioning with this people paying for access to the president from all sorts of places that we don't know. There was about five million dollars in uh, money that came through Mar-a-Lago after he was elected. Uh, We already know about Cohen's essential consulting firm, where things like Novartis and a Korean aerospace uh, firm and AT&T and a couple of guys named Vexelberg and Blavatnik paid millions of dollars to get access to the president to hire Michael Cohen as an aerospace consultant? Fuck you. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, this this sort of thing is is docu- well documented. We just don't know where it all came from. But like, you know, like you said, it probably doesn't matter. He's in so much debt up to his eyeballs that 
any offer for any piece of info that he has or intel that he has makes him compromise. Yeah, and and you know I brought up the family members because don't forget um, none other than Jared Kushner who was ruled to be ineligible for a clearance, but <laughs> but yet but yet Trump ordered him to have one. That guy has access to all of the intel, and I, I'm sure he's pouring over the intelligence brief more so than ever uh, than Trump ever would be able to read. And he's he's got that and he's prone to parlaying that into profiteering and likely already has. So um, this thing doesn't end when they if if they all leave office and it gets worse if they stay in office, it gets worse if they leave office. So um, my whole point of this is we need this to be investigated and part and parcel of any such investigation would be issues like, hey, we learned that his refund in one year he got a 70 million dollar refund um that automatically triggered a tax audit from irs where did that go where it where is that audit so um, i'm here to tell people when you keep hearing the president say and you may hear him during the debates say yeah i can't i can't disclose my tax records because i'm still under audit what he's saying is no, I'm under investigation. I'm not under a routine audit. I, I'm under investigation by the IRS and I'm screwed. And so, you know, he's essentially the president in, in, in saying I can't disclose my tax records is essentially invoking his Fifth Amendment rights publicly to not let us all see what might be criminally, incrimi uh, criminally incriminating. That's what he that's what he's doing. And so I would love to see Congress and or the FBI start looking into Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who, you know, because don't forget, the IRS sits under Treasury. And where in God's name is this audit and why isn't it over yet? Well, Frank, we would do well to remember that Trump pushed through, jammed through the appointment of his IRS commissioner and head of the IRS before he even did bar. It was that important to him to get uh, a couple of guys, one of whom makes money off of Trump rentals into the IRS to head up that organization, especially when the House Ways and Means Committee started sniffing around. And, you know, regarding Kushner, likely already having done, uh, given intel over from the PDB, uh, the, the PDB, which he looks at closely, we would also be well to remember that he gave uh, information on traitors to the crown to Saudi Arabia, who then expelled them and executed some of them. And, and then all of a sudden, he's getting payoffs for his 666 Fifth Avenue building from Saudi Arabia. So, you know, these things all are interconnected and it all has to be looked at. And right now, the only people doing it are journalists. Yeah, because everyone else seems to be handcuffed and, and stymied. And yep. and you, you, I'm glad you mentioned Saudi Arabia because, look, everybody's been scratching their heads over the big question of why, why is it that Trump is so cozy and comfortable with the dictators and the people and leaders acting against American interests and doing god-awful things around the globe? And you hear everything from, well, it's his personality type, he envies dictators, et cetera, et cetera. But I have to tell you, when you look at that through the lens of a guy who has to personally profit from his interactions to save his financial butt, you now, the, the, these relationships make a whole lot more sense to me. Mm. Yeah, he's a transactional guy. You can't sell our secrets to our allies. It, it, precisely, because we share them already. So when he's on the phone with Putin, 
when he's meeting with Erdogan, when he praises Duterte of, of the Philippines, when he ignores poisoning by Putin, when he cozies up to North Korea but talks about what a great opportunity North Korean beaches pose for condo developments. This guy, this guy's thinking about what they could do for him personally. Yeah. Yeah. Khashoggi. I mean, the list goes on and on. And when you're right, when you frame his behavior in that, when you look at through it, look at it through that lens, it makes a whole lot of sense. Um, can you tell everyone where they can read this piece? It's a really important piece. Absolutely. So it's posted on NBC Think. It's also available on my Twitter account at Frank Figluzzi one. And it's already getting a lot of hits because not only does it point out the national security issues arising from Trump's tax revelations, but it points out that those concerns don't just vanish if he leaves office. And you'll uh, you come back and talk to me when your book comes out. Oh, I'd love I'd love to do that because you know what? It's um, not entirely devoid of politics, but it's really focused on the FBI as an institution. And it's a pushback on the bashing the Bureau has taken during this administration. Good. Well, you know, I'm on that team. Thanks a lot, uh, former Assistant Director of the FBI for Counterintelligence, Frank Fugluzzi. I appreciate you talking to me today. Thanks, A.G. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Stay with us. Hey, Daily Beans listeners, it's A.G. And this portion of the podcast is brought to you by the good people at BetterHelp. Everyone needs help from time to time. I know we have the good news segment coming up, but when life gets stressful, you need help. And if you're struggling with anything that's preventing you from living your happiest life, like pandemics or politics, anxiety, I highly recommend BetterHelp. It is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. They'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in less than a day. You know I faced my own challenges with PTS, and I know it's important to seek help rather than try to face it alone. And BetterHelp services are available for clients worldwide. They have a broad range of expertise in their counselor network, which might not be available locally in your area at brick-and-mortar places. And the best thing about BetterHelp is you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor, and you get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly videos or phone sessions. And BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so if you really want to, if you need to change your counselor, it's free and easy to do so. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. So visit their website, read their testimonials, like this one by ZA, who says, uh, after my first session, I was really comfortable talking with Brenna. She had many things um, that I could practice daily to help with my anxiety. Also, after learning she had been affected by anxiety before, it made, a lot easier, it made it a lot easier to talk to her about what I was going through. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Daily Beans. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Daily Beans listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Daily Beans. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news. It's on the way. And joining me today for the good news is activist, comedian, extraordinaire, Dana Goldberg. Dana, how are you? Allison, it's good to be back. I am actually doing well. I, I flew for the first time in the pandemic. I've survived it. I was safe. I wore a, a, a mask and a shield that in very large blue letters says face shield in case anyone is confused why there's a, a windshield in front of my face. <laughs> it's very clear what it is. And so I'm enjoying the uh, beautiful what the administration calls hellscape of New York uh, and it's absolutely oh, it's yeah. absolutely gorgeous outside. 
the one, the anarchy, the streets Chaos. up. Yeah, there, there was a squirrel mm. eating a nut. I was like, "Fuck you, <gasps> get out of like this is where are the cops? Where are the cops? Are you okay? Uh, no, I mean, I think it was the it was the nut part actually that bothered me. <laughs> we really should rewind and give people a content warning. Um, I'm sorry. There, it, yeah. it, there's a trigger warning on this good news. My apologies. So yeah, I'm good. I actually I feel. <laughs> strangely uh, normal for the first time in six months in the sense that I actually even I, I got to work I got to work for the first time that felt like uh you know a, 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 it was a virtual gala but it was a gala nonetheless that's awesome yeah and our, our uh, friend who comes on on Fridays Amy Carrero she's up in Canada she's working great so you know I I, th- I think that's lovely and wonderful it has to feel good so I, I'm glad that's some good news that's my good news for the week Sweet. We have some good news from our listeners, too. If you have any uh, good news you want to submit, whether it's political or personal, or if you have a confession, I think we have a confession today, or if you have any corrections for when I fuck shit up, uh, and I don't mean like in a rad way, like, I'm going to fuck shit up today. No, like if I actually make an error, uh, please do it at dailybeanspod.com. Click contact. and We'll take care of it from there. So I'm going to go ahead and kick us off with good news from Anonymous and uh, pronouns for Anonymous or she and her. And Anonymous says, I finally got my husband to apply for a mail-in ballot. I've been begging and pleading for him to agree to vote this year, especially after RBG died. He was very demoralized after 2016, believing that his vote didn't matter. All politicians are the same, etc. Well, I think the recent news about Pino, president in name only, is taxes... (laughs) I've never heard Pinot before. I haven't either. That's funny. <laughs> kind of desecrates my favorite kind of wine, but we can do it. Pinot, president in name only, uh, his taxes were finally the straw that broke his stubbornness. Or maybe it was because I complained to my best friend, whose husband is my husband's best friend, and he convinced my husband to vote. You know, it doesn't count unless it comes from a man. Or maybe because we haven't had sex since RBG died. Whatever worked, I'll take it. Oh, <laughs> I, my God. I, I applied a month ago. And just got an email today that the ballot will be mailed soon. So hopefully he'll get his as soon as well. One more Biden vote for a key swing state. I love it. I wonder what she she meant by he'll get his soon as well. <laughs> like the ballot or was that the sex that hasn't happened since RBG died? <laughs> oh, no. Either way. Yeah. Uh, it could go either way. But I, I love the... Uh, my husband's friend convinced my husband to vote. You know, it doesn't count unless it comes from the man. It reminds me of my big fat Greek wedding, which is like, the man is the head, but the woman is the neck, and the woman can turn the head whichever way she wants. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes. More good news. We have more good news from Kristen, pronouns she and her. I had a date on Saturday. Whoop. Whoop. I had my heart colossally broken by a narcissist dick about two years ago, and this was my first date since then. This weekend's date was a sweet guy, and the conversation flowed well. I didn't feel any sparks, so I don't think it's going to lead anywhere. That being said, it was nice to get out of the house and enjoy some sushi in a handsome guy's company. I've been crushing some dating apps for a couple of months now. And this was my first in-person meetup. I'm hopeful for more, but I know what I bring to the table, and I'm not afraid to eat alone. I would like a man yes. to supplement my vibrator, though. <laughs> oh, here's a picture of my cats, Nick and Maddie, for the heck of it. Nick and Maddie are oh. adorable. Absolutely adorable. Nick is the tabby, and Maddie is the calico, because I think most calicos are females. There you go. But, you know, hey... 
I had a female cat named Frank. So you know what? Maybe th- what? Maybe there's a non-binary cat. We don't know. <laughs> I can't assume. Thank you. You are correct. You're welcome. And he does have white socks, though. <laughs> My friend's dog. We decided is gender non-binary. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. You know, it's a girl lifts lifts her leg, or they're they're they 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 present as female, but like lifts her leg when they pee, uh, okay. sort of thing. Yeah, there's like there's uh, there's some masculine and feminine traits. So we just decided the dog was non-binary. Anyway, let's move on. Mm, the dog, I love it. Uh, and we will include this picture, as we will include all pictures in the newsletter. Um, I think it comes out Mondays, and it goes right to your Patreon feed. Next up, from Anonymous, pronoun she and her, good news for Massachusetts voters. Question two on our ballot is for ranked choice voting in elections statewide. I'm so amped. I have seen barely any ads or signs about it, but Elizabeth Warren posted a video with Maura Healy, our state attorney general, in support and explaining how it would work. I'm hoping spreading the word on the pod may help shine a light on this opportunity Bay Staters have to transform our elections. During this attack on our democracy by the Cheeto-in-Chief, I get a little patriotic lady boner talking about this question (laughs) as a major pro-democracy move in a state that is not very interesting in terms of how we'll land on the presidential election. Vote yes on two. Keep up the good fight. That is awesome. I support ranked choice voting. I support lady boners. I love and your, your lady boner. I love the listeners. I love these. I love <laughs> these confessions. I love these good news. These are making me very joyful today. <laughs> good. I'm glad. All right. The next one. I love it. This is from Tara. Pronouns she and her. My in-laws who incidentally live in the district that Nate McMurray is running in surprised us on our weekly video call my husband reformed former trump voter mentioned that we had our biden harris sign up they said so do we now this is huge thing for me as they voted trump in 2016 i need to mention my in-laws and husband are canadian immigrants shout out to mandy who naturalized in late 90s they have swung the conservative way for years Uh, And we've had a few discussions about politics. No arguments, mind you, as they don't argue because I'm putting this in because they're Canadians. Canadians. Yeah. But we discuss. Okay. Just so you know. Yes. (laughs) They have questioned me a lot lately on our weekly calls about my positions and people I support. Long story short, they are voting Biden in the upcoming election. And so is my husband. Additional family members on his side have mentioned that they are voting this way also. And I'm immensely happy for this one little thing, honey. That is not a little thing. Thanks for Uh all you do each and every week. I've been an avid listener since way back and I appreciate your voice. Tara, this is awesome. Um, And I think that's fantastic. I also, (laughs) that was so funny with the, we don't argue. We know, we know. We know. <laughs> and we recently had Nate McMurray on uh, a Flip It Blue segment, too. I don't know if that episode has aired yet or not. If it's not, he's coming up. So that's very cool. Fabulous. Um, next up from Tim. Pronouns he and him. Tim, him. <laughs> Hi, ladies. I'm Tim. <laughs> All right. Good start. <laughs> I have been listening to the shows from the beginning. You ladies are fantastic. I must say that you've inspired me to start my own podcast. Yes, Tim. So far, it's not as good as yours, but I'm a work in progress. As a mental health counselor, my podcast, Political Mindscape, 
is really me ranting about the division in our country and how that's due to cognitive distortions. That is so awesome. I'm not a comedian, so it's not as funny as you folks, but I hope people find it informative. I plan on covering national politics and Oklahoma politics. We have some great progressives here. Thank you for all the hours of informed entertainment and for those out there that want to know. Podcasting is my new favorite coping skill. Tim, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And Tim, I'll tell you right now, if you're covering Oklahoma politics, you're just going to have comedy embedded in that. Mm -hmm. So don't worry. Mm -hmm. The jokes will write themselves. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. This next one's from anonymous pronouns she and her. Hello, queens of the bean. In 2017, at the age of 41, I had a bit of a midlife crisis and decided to go back to school. I was thoroughly miserable working as an analytical chemist in the pharmaceutical industry. I love the science, but hated the company, politics slash toxic environments. I figured if I had to pimp out my brain for a living, I might as well use my science skills to help people in a more direct fashion as opposed to making money for a bunch of douchebag shareholders or hedge funds. Love it. Mm. I got accepted into a post-bachelor's degree program in the medical laboratory sciences and graduated in 2019, one year before a global Mm. pandemic. What timing. Today I've helped test Mm. over 2,500 people for COVID. I enjoy working the COVID drive through, uh, through swabbing patients, answering their questions, and helping assuage their fears about this terrible virus doing good things in the world. Thank you. The COVID drive through sounds like my new band. Oh, my God. It should be. You're, you won't have an audience, but... <laughs> no, well, you can't come to the shows. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's just a drive through That's that's the best part. It's amazing. I don't have to lug any gear around. Um, <laughs> next up, from, I loved being in a band, but that was the shittiest part for reals. You had to carry around your 410 and your, and your bass head and your amp head and your bass and then you had to help the drummer always because uh, i was drummers. the drummer anyway. hey hey i was the drummer i was the drummer and i had to slap <laughs> that shit around you should have seen me as an eight-year-old in elementary school wheeling a giant <laughs> snare drum up the streets of albuquerque both ways uphill in the snow <laughs> the streets of albuquerque <laughs> the mean streets of the mean streets of albuquerque of Al- this thing was so big and clunky though snow. it was like a giant drum in a case that i had on like a luggage cart it was i wish someone had taken a picture of me and my tiny little self dragging this thing every day to band <laughs> good times you had the big dong dong you had the bass drum is that what you played no i actually when i was i was the section leader of the drum line in high school i was a sophomore girl in charge of the entire drum line Ooh, i know damn. i don't mean to brag it's such a talk about lady boner am i right ah you know what <laughs> yes yes and you know what if if we ever dated and then we broke up and we got back together there would be repercussions yeah ha ah, very what? nice what what okay <laughs> enough drummer jokes next up from nicole <laughs> Uh, pronouns she and her. Hey all, first off, let me say thank you for keeping my semi se- keeping me semi-sane during 45's term. My good news comes from the great quotes state of Texas. My wife and I have been together for the past 10 years. Once same-sex marriage in the United States became legal in 2015, we decided to tie the knot in 2016. Flash forward to 2017, and we're ready to become parents. Oh, congratulations. After five rounds of intrauterine insemination, IUI, and a successful birth, we we now have the happy family that we always wanted. At least that's what we thought. Even though Texas now recognizes same-sex marriages, I still had no legal rights over our daughter as the non-biological parent. 
Thankfully, one of our good friends had recently passed a bar exam and informed us of the situation. Um, So after many months of waiting, providing legal documents, providing five references, running background checks, paying thousands of dollars in legal fees, doing a home study and going to court, I can now say I am officially recognized as a legal parent in the eyes of Texas. The whole process was BS, but I would gladly do it again and again for this little nugget. Oh, look at that little nugget. You know, I have to say it's such bullshit. And listen, Mm. I know that you're part of the ally group, but that straight people can just like go out to the bar, have too much to drink, go home, have sex. She actually gets knocked up accidentally. His name's on the birth certificate. Boom, done. Like that's insane what same-sex couples have to go through just to get legal just to get, just to get legally, uh, have their ch- their children. They're their children. I, anyways, it just it's mm-hmm. mind blowing to me. It's so infuriating. That's another. Well, Jesus, the, the Supreme Court. I've said that's another case that needs to go to the Supreme Court, but maybe not for a while. Maybe we'll just save that one for mm. a little while. Jesus. Okay. Mm. Good news. We're staying in the good news. We're staying in the good news. No. We're gonna end with this one. And I'm totally with you on all that, by the way. And uh, I've seen, I've seen, I, I, like, I have some uh, friends who do stand up and they're like it should be as difficult for straight people to have a baby because like you don't like you said you don't you don't get drunk and end up at the adoption agency right. with papers in your hand and a baby in the other like oh okay i've never had a pregnancy scare allison <laughs> <laughs> we call those abortion scares where i come there from you go. i'm kidding i'm sorry okay <laughs> don't be sorry Woo. You should, okay trust me right now anyone who wants an abortion you should go get one males female i don't care now's the time who knows who knows? <laughs> just go get it anyway. Just, just go get one. Even if you don't plan on having one, just get one. We're going to get some messages on this one. Make sure you address them to Allison. All right. Our last good news, good news, <laughs> our last good news submission for the week is from anonymous pronouns she, her. My badass granny turns 90 on Wednesday and I got her to adopt a state through Vote Save America. If any michiganders answer the phone to a mostly deaf woman telling you to vote for biden uh that that just may be her <laughs> vote for biden vote for biden hello what hello? i can see it i can see it like the like the you know the lady with the big ear in the painting what is that the whistler's grandmother or whatever she's got the big oh ear god. assist megaphone anyway oh my god do it that's I, so awesome. i would love to get that phone call hello happy birthday uh, you called me who is this <laughs> who is this <laughs> uh, it's it's dana, it's dana you called me right vote for biden okay <laughs> every once in a while my mother calls and i'm like hello and she goes hello and i'm like hi she says dana i was like yeah yeah you called me yes you it's, called me. Yes, it's, it's dana it's the weirdest conversation for those of you that do know oh. me, you've heard stories about my mother. She's phenomenal, though. And I do hope that one day she is that 90-year-old woman calling people, screaming into the telephone to vote for, like, who's the kid that's going to be president, hopefully, in 30 years? Who knows? Um, It's going to be this little nugget from the previous story. Oh, my God. It should be the nugget. It should be the same-sex nugget. I love Gabies. She's super cute, too. I know. With her little curls. Oh, God. I know. Thank you for this, Allison. I mean, it really is these just mm-hmm. added good news and the confessions. And I love I love these people so much. I just need a man that's supplement my vibrator. I hear you. <laughs> they love you, too, Dana. Uh, um, 
Anyway, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do the good news with me. Everyone submit your stuff, dailybeanspod.com, and click contact. Do you have anything else you, you want to say before we get out of here, Dana? No, you know, just like, just, 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 I, I think the debates are when we're recording this, and I just get through the, get through the night. Don't, you know, don't, no drinking games. Please, no drinking games. Just, we just need you all to be alive for the, to vote November 3rd. That's it. I love you. All right. Awesome. And we will talk to you tomorrow, everybody. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn, and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com.